Hello and welcome to the latest Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and I am joined today, as always, on this series by Peter Silent, the fund manager and entrepreneur who is on the continent of Europe most of the time uh, while I'm here in the UK. And we like to exchange views about what's going on in our favorite areas of interest, including the financial markets, perhaps first and foremost, but also the wider picture of what's going on in the world. And indeed, there's a lot going on in the world, or at least so it seems there might be a lot going on in the world at the moment. We're coming to the end of the first month of the year, uh, and a number of leading stock markets have fallen quite sharply, over the sharp, their biggest fall for some while. Uh, and meanwhile, there is obviously a significant potential geopolitical development in the fact that Mr. Putin, the uh, president of Russia, is accumulating, amassing a large number of troops on the border of Ukraine and threatening to uh, uh, interfere or even invade that country. So, Peter, let's start by uh, just talking about what's actually happened in the markets. Of course, as I mentioned, the, the stock markets are down and uh, bond yields are up. Now, uh, a lot of reasons why that could be, but perhaps we'll start by taking uh, your take on that. Jonathan, good morning. It's very nice to be back online to discuss these important events. What happened? Well, there was a confluence of events which were triggered at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, and which was accompanied like always at this time of year, note, that investors reshuffled and repositioned themselves and their portfolios. And that can sometimes lead to a pretty sharp movements in share and in this case also bond prices. What then exacerbated this urge to reposition was the very clever and very astute and very dangerous move by President Putin, who took advantage barely 10 days after the advent of a new German government. He took advantage of the weakness of the German government and the weakness of the new chancellor, plus the fact that these Germans are very much aligned with Russia for commercial and political reasons. And so you suddenly had the combination of rising inflation, rising energy costs as triggered by President Putin, which of course led to falling bond prices and rising bond yields. And of course, all that together made um, Mr. Jerome Powell uh, come out with much more hawkish statements as he did last week and which hammered everything that could be described rightly or wrongly as long-duration assets which are influenceable by interest rates and caused a sharp re-rotation back into so-called cyclicals. Now, before you comment from your side, I wanted to tell you that, in my opinion, cyclicals and growth stocks have become sound bites and labels behind which investors will hide in order to go with the flow, Jonathan. Yes, indeed. Uh, and it's nothing as ever as simple as that uh, would make it appear that there's only kind of two types of stock or share and that they're all going to behave in the same way. That, of course, is a total simplification of what's been going on. But it is uh, noticeable, I would, I would say, that the you know it's not just the fact that there's been this kind of uh, rotation between the kinds of things that are doing well and the kind of things that are doing badly, uh, but also the scale of it has been pretty dramatic. 
Now, I guess the issue as far as um, what's really lying behind all this is uh, it's complicated to untangle, isn't it? Because we all know that uh, inflation has gone a lot higher in the United States and in Europe or in some parts of Europe than uh, any of the policymakers uh, anticipated or wanted, and that therefore there was a lot of pressure on Mr. Powell and the Federal Reserve to actually do something about it even before Mr. Putin started uh, amassing his uh, his troops and his uh, armoured vehicles on the border of Ukraine. So you say that he's, you know, his reaction has, has helped to uh, deepen this kind of market movement. Uh, but don't you think that he would have had to do something similar to this anyway, and that maybe it's not yet the Russian situation which is really causing the market gyrations? That's a very good question, very topical question, and I think you're quite right. If you go back in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, it has been relatively rare that geopolitics has affected financial markets. I always felt that in as much as geopolitics involves either superpower conflict or a rise in the price of energy, uh, oil, gas, and so on, or a combination of both, which is the combination of those two is the most deadly. And that is what we're seeing now. What Putin has very cleverly managed to do is to not only make Europe energy dependent on him and to be seen to be doing that, but also taking advantage of the disunity that the Europeans have, and or even the disunity between the European, in inverted commas, position and the US approach to that. So he has managed very cleverly to um, widen divisions that were already there. And therefore, it's very difficult to see how Europe can wean itself off uh, a dependence on Russian gas which is going to make the price of energy go up and inflation stay stubbornly high, Jonathan. Yes, and there's another broader issue as well, of course, which is some people are saying, and I'm not saying I'm giving this the credence of a, a kind of well-held view, but some people are saying, is it possible that maybe the Russians and the Chinese have come to a kind of informal arrangement here? Because there's been a lot of noise now coming in the background about China wanting to take back Taiwan. And uh, President Xi of China is very much as uh, tough a figure, I think it's fair to say, as Mr. Putin. Uh, and maybe, you know, the idea is that there is this kind of informal, possibly pact between the two, that they're going to rattle the cages of the West, divide their attention, particularly the Americans, who obviously look both to the Pacific and to Europe for their uh, global statesman-like role, if you like, and military role, it has to be said. Uh, do you think there's any truth in that? Is that a, well, that would be an even more worrying possibility, would it not? It would indeed, and I'm completely sure that you're right. Because look, for example, at what the US and to an extent the UK, but especially the US and France as well, I may add, and France uh, and Italy, uh, what these countries all have in common is that they are all in front of or just before some kind of election. I mean, you've got the UK regional elections, you've got the US elections coming up in the congressional elections, where it's highly likely that the result will be a lame duck president. You've got France, where the same thing is happening. It's, it's wide open. The French presidential election is wide open. Uh, 
You've got the German government, the new one that I mentioned before, trying to make some kind of mark. And then you've got a complete breakdown in a pan-European energy policy, defense policy, foreign policy, and so on. And so the timing couldn't be better. So I'm quite convinced that there's an alignment of interest between the Chinese and the Russians. And what is not helping in this alignment of geopolitical strategy between the Chinese and the Russians is the fact that there is a creeping Molotov-Ribbentrop accord which seems to be building up between the new German foreign secretary and, of course, the very powerful Russian foreign minister. So whether this Chinese-Russian pact or alliance, let's say, is going to be possible in reality rather than just on paper, that remains to be seen. But it has been a very, very clever tactical move by the Chinese and the Russians, and each one of those two want to make their mark for different reasons, either political reasons or economic reasons, Jonathan. Yes, indeed. And uh, of course, it's fair to say that Mr. Putin and President Xi, in this regard at least, do not have the problem of having to worry about what the electorate is going to do, because they <laughs> they don't really have uh, free elections. And uh, this has historically always been a problem for Western democracies. You know, that democracy is a wonderful thing, but in times of Difficulty when you're facing a an aggressor, uh, which we think that uh, Mr. Putin is likely to become if he's not already in that camp. Uh, they find it difficult to uh, to deal with that because they all have, you know, domestic issues to think about as well, and getting back into power or retaining power, or whatever it might be. Uh, and as we've seen, we've heard this in the UK in a rather kind of bizarre way because of the troubles that our Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in because of so-called Partygate. The idea that uh, all the staff in Number 10 were having parties while everybody else was, was locked down across the country. And, uh, you know, people are, are drawing this conclusion by saying, or some of his supporters, of which there aren't many left, but there are some, saying, well, you know, this is all ridiculous. We're kind of, we're getting very excited about whether or not a birthday cake was delivered to Mr. Johnson uh, on his birthday in 2020, when actually we should be looking out of the window and seeing what's happening on the, on the broader international stage. So there is a problem here, I think, and perhaps we, we might just talk about one reason why there is disunity between, you know, the Americans and parts of Europe on the one hand and within Europe on the other hand. And one of the other factors, which perhaps I might just throw in here, is the question of how much debt has accumulated in all these countries. You know, everybody said it was fine to issue all this money, but actually the amount of debt there is going to act as a constraint on what uh, governments in the US and indeed in Europe can actually do. Uh, in order to respond to Mr. Putin. So do you think that is a, a relevant factor? It's more than relevant. It's crucial. But there might be a golden or a silver lining, because if they are very indebted and much more indebted in Europe than they were 10 years ago, then the central banks will have to think twice about being too aggressive with their monetary policy because they might end up either creating serious problems for some of the weaker uh, European governments, or creating, if you like, a gap, a widening spread between the traditional Italian government bonds and the traditional German government bonds. And that would be very bad for the single currency. I, I think another element which 
is again a huge example of how the obsession with climate change has resulted in Europe shooting itself firmly in the foot, is that what do the Russians and even the Ukrainians want with regard to their trade in gas with the West, with the Europeans? They want to push the Europeans into signing long-term gas contracts with the Russians and as I say, even with the Ukrainians. But of course, the Europeans don't want to do that because they know that gas is on its way out and is going to be replaced by cleaner energies. Even if the obtention of these cleaner energies is still likely to take quite a long time. So they're reluctant to enter into long-term natural gas agreements, which would force them to pay and pay and pay for many years for something which they will need less and less. And I think therein lies a very good problem, a very important problem, whereby Putin has the Europeans by the throat. And uh, so long as that situation persists, it's going to make prices stay high or go higher, which in turn will exacerbate the inflationary picture. Would you not think? Uh, yes, I would think that very much. I think then the question we perhaps ought to think about is what happens if the worst happens? Let's suppose that Mr. Putin does send his tanks or whatever they are these days over the border into Ukraine. I mean, the Americans and NATO have said, made it clear they're not going to kind of go to war uh, immediately in a conventional war, but uh, they are going to talk about sanctions and they're going to do all sorts of things like that. They will suspend the gas imports and so on. Uh, and they'll try and target all the wealthier Russians abroad or try and target the money that the Russians have piled up abroad or many Russians have piled up abroad and, and try to uh, lock the Russians out of the international financial system. So if, that, if the worst was to happen, I mean, that obviously would have an impact on the markets. No question about that, I would say. But what do you think it might be? And, and uh, how would you then see it playing out? Should we be thinking about that kind of scenario now? Very much so. But let me first address your point about NATO. I heard an interview with the General Secretary of NATO yesterday in which he stated unequivocally that NATO troops would not go into Ukraine because Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And so Article 2 or whatever it is doesn't apply. I think that's a disingenuous argument. If you remember back during the Yugoslav dissolution wars, when that monster Milosevic ended up his demise, finally, was caused by NATO bombardment. I think it was in Bosnia. It was NATO aeroplanes who bombarded a country which was not to help a country despite that country not being a member of NATO. So you must correct me if I'm wrong there, but that's what my memory tells me. So I think that's as far as, as NATO is concerned. And then, of course, your other point is the point about sanctions. Yes, they've threatened sanctions. Do they sound hollow? Yes, they sound very hollow. Is that surprising? No, it's not surprising because it's always like that. Uh, sanctions, in a way, is like fiddling about the edges. And apparently, the nuclear option of cutting out the Russians from the SWIFT system, we mustn't forget that it sounds very brutal and very extreme, but the SWIFT system is a system which is not contrary to what you might believe, controlled by the Americans. It's a European system, which is located in Brussels. 
And of course, the, what the Americans could do is to lean on the American banks and maybe also non-American banks and prevent them from transacting uh, payments with and from Russia. But of course, again, there is a very strong likelihood that that is going to harm the European banking system. If you consider how much money has been lent by French banks like uh, Société Générale and big Italian banks to Russian borrowers, I'm not sure it would be really a very good idea to harm your own banking system, to cut off your nose to spite your face at a time when Russia, just like China, have managed to de-dollarize a lot of their commerce. And the Russians have introduced their own sort of mini SWIFT payment system. They're not stupid, the Russians. They know very well what the Western powers could do sanctions-wise. So I think that uh, this banging on about sanctions is yet another a sign of Western weakness and the Russians are just rubbing their hands in glee. Yes, I think there's a, there's obviously a lot of truth in that. Sanctions have never been a particularly effective tool, it has to be said, though we've never tried them perhaps with the uh, global financial system in, uh, you know, so well uh, plumbed together as it is now. Okay, so clearly, as we discussed in an earlier episode, we think that uh, Putin obviously got an agenda. The question is, what is it? We don't know. And he's been quite careful to keep that quiet. I mean, he's made some demands, which obviously are impossible for NATO to accept. But he presumably he wants to make uh, his his ambition would be to make Ukraine back into a, a kind of client state of, of Russia. Uh, and then he'd be a bit closer to the kind of fringes of Europe, uh, European Union, at least. And then he would continue to apply sort of pressure through, as you say, uh, energy supplies and so on. But of course, one of the arguments I suppose you could make on the other side is that you know, one of the ideas, I don't know whether this is part of the German thinking, but one of the ideas is that it's better to kind of tie yourself in with the Russians than it is to constantly be antagonistic towards them. And Mr. Putin is very good at, uh, you know, generating a sense of grievance. And indeed, his political power kind of rests on that in a way, along with the secret state. So where does this end, though? I mean, is this a case where we just completely misjudged the man in Europe and in the US? Or is it a case that uh, we've, you know, our policy has been uh, unsuccessful. Well, misjudging the man in the US, I mean, it depends who you ask. A lot of people, including myself, are not surprised at the weakness that uh, the president in America has displayed. So th that's less surprising. But I think that all you need to do, as so often, is look at the map uh, whilst you reflect on what Putin has demanded from NATO. So he's demanded that all the NATO troops be withdrawn to the pre-1997 borders. That would include the three Baltic states and Poland. Well, everybody who's been watching Russia perennially knows that one of the things that is highest on the agenda of President Putin is the reconquest of the three Baltic states which they could do literally overnight. And nobody in the West, apart from emitting loud sounds of protest, could or would do anything about it. But first, he's got to clear out the NATO troops from the three Baltic states. The same in Poland, of course. He wants to clear out, and then he wants a guarantee that Ukraine will never be allowed into NATO, which is equally absurd, because 
you should be operating on the basis that every country has a self-determination right as well as a right to defense and being defended. So it's, again, very disingenuous of, of Mr. Putin, who, of course, knows that the Westerners, the Western politicians, haven't asked anything in return, like, for instance, as we discussed last time, that the Russians withdraw from Kaliningrad, that the Russians withdraw from Moldova, and that the Russians withdraw from all their activities in the Balkans. Have you heard anyone talk about the Balkans recently? No. But any observer knows that the Russians are omnipresent in the Balkans. So the Russians have been very clever at misleading the Europeans and the Americans because they don't seem to have the full big picture in mind when they negotiate with the Russians, Jonathan. Yes, and I mean, I suppose the issue, though, in a way, is do you think it's a practical possibility that the Russians could actually occupy all these places uh, and sustain an occupation there through military force against a population that doesn't want them? I mean, that obviously was an issue that was perhaps looked different in the uh, 1930s than it does now. But do you think in the real world that's actually a possibility and something that Mr. Putin thinks he could actually get away with? Occupying a foreign state where the majority of the population, or someone's later believe, does not want them there. You know, the lessons of Afghanistan and so on, which are very special circumstances, uh, might suggest otherwise. I think he's already proven that he can do that and that he can get away with that by invading the Crimea in 2014. Loud protests, but... Who did what to stop him? And it was a trial run, in my opinion, for him. He can't occupy all these Soviet-occupied countries in one fell swoop. He knows that. But don't forget, the Russians are chess players as opposed to the Americans who are poker players. And the characteristic of a chess player, which fits the Russians completely, is that they're very patient. For them, you know, 20, 30 years is nothing. It's the bat of an eyelid. And they have a long-term agenda, which they doggedly stick to. And they want to clear out the center of Europe. They want NATO to get out and they want to redraw the map as it was before. And so there are a lot of weak Western observers who say, well, for the sake of peace, this is what we should give Putin. We should turn the center of Europe, Central Europe, into a conflict-free, no-man's-land, so to speak, zone, forgetting or ignoring the fact that these Central European countries are Central European countries, and they determine that they want to be part of Europe and not part of the Russian yoke. Therefore, what he's asking for has got to be totally unacceptable, and I think he knows that. He knows that. He knows very well that his demands will never be met in that form. So what do you think, therefore, in the practical terms, governments in Europe and the US should actually be doing? I mean, for a start, it seems to me they have to mobilise public opinion in some way, first of all, to stop people in order that people can focus on the things that really matter rather than things which are important in small ways, but not necessarily significant on the grand scale, whether that's birthday cakes or taking down statues of people you don't like. I mean, how can we how can we mobilize public opinion in this country to actually take this uh, issue seriously? That unfortunately depends on the country. 
If you take the UK, for example, their dependence on Russian gas is minimal compared with the dependence on Russian gas of uh, Central European states, but also uh, Germany. Germany is very much dependent. And Germany has become the weak link. And so I think uh, the German public opinion should be better formed and educated. But of course, the new German government, after five minutes in office, they're already tearing each other apart. They have major differences of opinion. And you have a chancellor who hasn't opened his mouth on any of these important subjects. And the silence in Germany is deafening. That's the problem, because what we need, as I said earlier, is a, a common Europe, a common policies. And then one needs to persuade the population in each of these countries that that is required. The British attitude since Brexit has, of course, been completely different. It's not for reasons of kindness that Mr. Johnson has put advisors and military advisors into Ukraine and making a big deal out of it. It's not out of the kindness of his heart. It's because he wants to be seen to be one of the big players within NATO, thereby undermining the European drive for a common defense and foreign policy. It's a very complicated situation, Jonathan, and I can't really answer your question in a very efficient way because we just have to wait and see, sadly. Indeed. And so I think that brings us to you know a useful concluding point here, which is that we posited the question at the outset that this, you know, what is driving financial markets at the moment? And uh, obviously opinions differ about that. But, you know, if you're right uh, about some of your concerns and what might happen next, uh, then this could become the year in which geopolitics does become a factor again and may well have an influence on uh, financial markets. Well, because presumably if there is an invasion, let's suppose there was an invasion, you would think this would lead to a something of a flight to uh, lower risk assets or flight away from risk assets. You don't know. I mean, we might see something happen to the price of gold, which hasn't moved surprisingly much at all, uh, and so on. And we might see um, you know, more of a sell-off in the equity market. But uh, we can always return to discuss that topic. But I wonder just to, to conclude your kind of initial thoughts on that. The initial thought on that is that we need to keep our eyes glued on bond markets. And if you want to keep it simple, then you should keep your eyes glued on the US 10-year Treasury bond, because that is the main thermometer. And there you have 90% of observers who say that the yield of the 10-year Treasury bond is destined to go upwards as quantitative tightening continues and accelerates, including the shrinkage of the Fed's balance sheet and the program of increased Fed funds, some say it'll be four this year, um, others say it'll be six this year, and so on. Uh, so that's one school of thought uh, held by 90% of observers. The remaining 10% or so have a problem with that thinking because they believe that as yields grind upwards, there comes a time when there's a limit to that upward grinding because of the many trillions of institutional monies whether it's pension funds or foreign banks or foreign central banks, that will always be the marginal perennial buyer of these kinds of securities for whatever reason, either because they look for yield or because they are looking for safe haven. 
and that as a result, the entire structure of bond yields and interest rates is actually not going to go up as much as the 90% people think. But the end result, Jonathan, just to close on this subject, is that the amount of pessimism out there just couldn't be worse right now. Everybody is pessimistic, and we usually know what that means, Jonathan. <laughs> indeed we do. Uh, indeed we do. It usually means the opposite is going to happen. And the 10-year yield has gone up to about 1.78, I think it is at the moment, 1.78%. So that's the, that's the indicator you suggest watching. And uh, I would agree with you. I mean, I know some of the, a lot, as you say, a lot of the brokers, for example, in the States, I was looking at Bank of America, for example, you know, my big broker there, they're saying, oh, well, we're going to have seven interest rate rises this year, and it's going to go up to 2.7% or something. Uh, I mean, I would agree with you. I, I would suspect that isn't going to happen. But uh, we shall have to wait and see. It's all a very interesting, complex situation and uh, being played out on the world stage, not just in uh, domestic uh, politics as well, though there's a lot of that around as well. So thank you, Peter. Very interesting conversation and discussion. I think it's obviously a theme we're going to have to return to over the course of the year as these things play out. And uh, I look forward to doing just that. So do I. And thank you very much, Jonathan. All the best. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.